My name is Kyle, if you don't know who I am, and this is Uplift. Just a reminder to you that this message will be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online class called The Conversation. It's streamed every Sunday morning, so when you hear me introduce this on Sunday mornings, I'll see you at 10 a.m. This is what folks see. So if you're watching us on Sunday morning, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, be sure to say hi in the chat. Tonight we wrap up our fall series called Meet Jesus. We've allowed ourselves this fall to get reintroduced to Jesus. That's a tall order, because a lot of us think we might know Jesus, but we've kind of poked and prodded and investigated, and I've, I've really enjoyed this series, and uh, I think this, is, uh, this has been a good one for me, at least. If you've missed any of these previous messages, you can find them on our website. You can also find them on our podcast, so you can uh, listen to those or you can uh, share those. So throughout our investigation, we tested Jesus's claims and uh, reviewed his actions, uh, and it's been good. This is the final look at Jesus, though, and I've saved, intentionally, the final component of Jesus's life and purpose for tonight. And it's this, that Jesus is our redeemer, that he is a ransom for us. But he's a different kind of God. We're going to explain this as we kind of roll through uh, tonight. Jesus actually defined himself as a redeemer, as a ransom, and he did so in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So let's read this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He's the ransom. He's the redeemer. And as the redeemer, he provides an exchange. He, his life is a payment for us, for our lives. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that passage in just a moment. But for, for, for just, just a brief minute, I just kind of want us to ponder that loaded statement, because that's, that's a big one that Jesus offered his life as a ransom, as a buyback, if you will, for us. Because that statement actually makes a pretty big assumption, pretty big assumption, and it's this, that we actually need redemption, that we need to be purchased, that we need redeeming. That, that's a big assumption. Those are, those are big ideals, and if we're, if we're sincere in our thoughts, that's going to lead us to all kinds of places, to all kinds of questions like, like these, like who is Jesus anyway? Who is this guy that, who thinks his life is infinitely more valuable than all of humanity? I mean, that's the kind of question your friends who don't believe in Jesus are going to ask, by the way. It's good for us to ask those. Is, is this kind of statement that Jesus makes, is it just sort of an arrogant statement? I mean, what, what is this? Or is this a symptom of someone who's not thinking clearly or doesn't have the cognitive ability to think clearly? And another, another question, why, why do we need redeeming? Why do we need to be purchased? Because honestly, I don't feel like I've been purchased by someone. And I don't know if I feel like I need to be purchased by someone. Right? Those are weird thoughts. I mean, we think we have control of our lives, but we have the ability to make decisions about our outcomes and our future. So who is this guy that makes this kind of claim on us that we need to be purchased? I mean, these are, these are big questions. They're core questions about the nature of life and existence. And they're honestly, they're questions that we rarely discuss, actually for good reason, because we're busy. We're busy people. We're living. We're trying to conquer today, trying to get through today. Those, these kinds of big questions are questions for philosophers and thinkers, not, not doers, right? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe we do need to think about these questions, and maybe we need to think about a God who defines himself this way about a different kind of God. But before we do that, before we talk more about those questions, let's talk about everybody's favorite fast food restaurant, which is Chick-fil-A. 
man, you got it right. Bonus points in English class for you. Way to go. So proud of you. Right, when you hear Chick-fil-A, can't you already taste the nuggets and the sauce, right? Can't you see yourself in the Chick-fil-A dining room, right? And you've got these people, these lovely people who smile at you. They're happy to see you. They're going to refill your sweet tea just because. When you are in a Chick-fil-A restaurant, you feel like royalty. It's like the greatest feeling ever. Forbes magazine actually published an interview with Chick-fil-A's former CEO and chairman of its board now, Dan Cathy. And it was pretty fascinating. The article was written by Dan Yeager, if you want to pull it up, and it's in a section on their site called Leadership Strategy. Evidently, uh, Don Yeager interviews a lot of high-performing folks, and he kind of gets their insights into leadership and management. So he interviewed Dan Cathy. And through the article, Dan Cathy's strategy for leadership is quite remarkable. I mean, you probably don't know this, but it's, it's not too hard to find. Chick-fil-A has 2,600 locations in America, and this year it's been named the best fast food restaurant by customers, not by some editorial board, by customers for the eighth year in a row. So when Dan Cathy speaks, people listen to what he has to say. And in the interview, Dan Cathy remarked about one of the pinnacle moments of his life, and it wasn't selling chicken sandwiches. It was being in a high school wrestling match when he won the state title by beating the person that beat him the year before. He beat this person by one point. And he says, in this article, that was the, one of the pinnacle moments of his entire life. And he said, this, this is a quote from the article, I learned what it meant to leave everything on the mat. There's an exhilaration and sheer joy that comes from complete exhaustion and knowing that you did your very best. It's an incredible experience. That one moment carried with him through his entire, entire life, that competitive moment, it, it, had a, it put a drive in him to lead the leading fast food chain in America. I mean, maintenance in stores done promptly, no potholes in the parking lot. The technology is always up to date. It makes and it allows Chick-fil-A to get people through their drive-throughs as quickly as possible. He credits a lot of that not only to his high school experience, but to a season in his life where he spent some time with another man, another high profile and high performer, a guy named Horst Schulz, who is the co-founder and the CEO of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. So he met with Horst Schulz. And Schulz encouraged Dan Cathy to pattern Chick-fil-A after the Ritz-Carlton. Dan Cathy was trying to figure out a way to get out of the box. So Schulz, he said, you need, to, you need to do what we do. So you know what he did? Dan Cathy put fresh flowers on his tables in all of his restaurants. And he hired hosts, those folks that fill your sweet tea, he hired hosts to make customers feel noticed and seen and cared for and valuable. Dan Cathy has a keen insight into what people need when they come to Chick-fil-A. And believe it or not, it's not a chicken sandwich. It's not the nugs. Dan Cathy said that a person's greatest need is this, being encouraged. And he says this in the interview, Chick-fil-A's purpose is that customers leave better and are more encouraged than when they came in. Is that not an unbelievable mission statement? It's not to serve the most sandwiches. It's to make people feel served. In other words, 
Kathy realized that the true strength of Chick-fil-A is service. Not customer service, but people service. Making sure that guests felt better when they left because they were there. Service. I mean, it's not that revolutionary, right? Service. Serving people. I mean, obviously, it's not a novel idea. Let's read from our text. It's on your notes. It's also going to be on the screen. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. It's 10 verses, so stay with me here. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, What do you, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other ten apostles, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones, their leaders, exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now before, before Jesus identifies himself as our Redeemer, as the ransom for many, as a different kind of God, he has to do a couple of things here. Specifically, he has to redefine some expectations because identifying himself as a different kind of God. In answering all those questions we asked earlier, it's not an easy task here. I mean, his followers are completely confused about his mission and his message. So, so what I'm going to do here before we continues, I want to ask something from you. I'm going to ask and encourage you to see this passage with some fresh eyes tonight. For those of us who have been raised in the faith, we've read this a million times, but I'm going to ask you to give it a second look with me, to see Jesus one last time in our series here in a different way than perhaps you've ever seen him. And I also want you to remember that theme of service. Remember all those questions. Who is this Jesus? Who is this guy that makes these kinds of claims on my life? Do I need these things? And I want you to remember this word service as we kind of talk. It's going to actually serve us well in the next few moments. So redefining some things. Here's the first thing that Jesus has to redefine here. He has to redefine the expectations of culture. This is a big one. I actually love this passage. I love this entire chapter. Because James and John, when they ask this question of Jesus, they ask a question, if we're going to be real honest, we would ask Jesus too, Right? If we've given up everything to follow Jesus, we're going to want some payback. That's what, that's what these guys are asking, right? Is there going to be some special place for us when this is all said and done? I mean, are we going to be with you? We've given up so much to follow you. Is there something in this for us? So I don't want us to beat up James and John too much because I think we would ask those same questions. I know I would. But what's interesting about this passage is Jesus' reply. It's kind of interesting here. And this is what he says to them after they ask that question. He says this. 
the rulers of this world love power. They love exercising power over people. But not you. Not you. You're going to serve people. You're going to put yourself beneath people. Now, this reply seems to come out of nowhere. It does for me. It just kind of shows up. It's not really something that you would expect Jesus to say here. So to fully understand Jesus' reply, we've got to do a summary of everything he's previously taught in this chapter and how Mark arranged these teachings of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Mark chapter 10. It might be helpful as we do an outline in the next few moments. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but you'll at least kind of see how it's positioned. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the very beginning of Mark chapter 10. Because until this point, Jesus has had some powerful teachings centered on one thing. And this is a big one. You might want to write this down. There's no slide. It's not in your notes. But Mark chapter 10, Jesus has concerned himself chiefly with social power. Social power. Social power struggles. Who's the one who's in charge? Who's not in charge? How are those relationships defined? And so what Jesus says through Mark chapter 10 rewrites the future of those guys and rewrites our history or writes our history. So let's walk through it. Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. In those brief sections, Jesus taught on marriage. And you can read it there. We're not going to read it. We often use this passage when the conversation or the topic of divorce is presented. It's there. Jesus talks about it. But there's another subtext here in this passage. In this teaching, what Jesus does by speaking into divorce and removing what they said, what culture said was okay for divorce, he took that away. And what he did, what he did was he actually gave power to the wife. That's the point of this. The power that she did not possess in this paradigm. In this teaching, what he says is husbands can no longer flippantly di divorce their wives or toss their wives aside like property. You can't do this. So what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, is that marriage matters, and so does the wife. This is a big thing. In Jesus' kingdom, in his new world, the husband no longer has sole power in the marriage. He shares it with his wife. Now remember, he's redefining culture and cultural expectations. This is the first part of this. Marriage matters and so does the wife. The husband and wife now share power in this relationship. Here's the next section of scripture in Mark chapter 10. This is in verses 15 and 16. So Jesus in this passage, he welcomes little children to come talk to him, right? It's a very famous passage. And you know this, children in the society in which Jesus lived, the lowest people in society, had no rights. In fact, in Rome, parents were within their rights to abandon, completely abandon their babies. No harm. So he invites these children, he exalts them, he gives them presents, and in doing this, he subverts the expectations here and says that the lowest in society are actually the recipients of his greatest gift, his own kingdom. The kingdom belongs to such as these. In other words, he's giving them a lifetime without social or religious expectations because that's what was going to be heaped on them. But he says, that's not, this is not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. So in these two verses here, 
He says that children matter. Children matter. Like wives, like women, children now have status in his kingdom. Children are seen. They're to be protected. The third part of this chapter, in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, moving on, Jesus subverts the expectations of the rich young man, right? Who comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus remarks and teaches here in this section, it's rather long, that neither wealth nor religious performance would allow this man to inherit eternal life. You can't get there by what you do. In other words, young man, there is nothing you can do. You can do nothing to inherit eternal life because, Jesus says, eternal life is a gift. It's given to you by God. So in this passage, grace matters. Grace matters. The love of God cannot be earned. So let's kind of, kind of walk back here and do a little summary. In the first part of Mark chapter 10, marriage matters. The second part, children matter. And the third part, grace matters. Now, the fourth section, which precedes what we've read earlier in verses 32 through 34, Jesus concludes this in the way that Mark kind of arranges his material. Jesus foretells his death. It's the third time he does this in Mark. And he does this on the heels of these socially upending remarks. The powers that be in Israel, in the world, would not be happy. We're not happy with Jesus' teaching. There was a status quo to be maintained. Men controlled women. Children meant nothing. You had to work hard. Jesus comes in and says, wives have power. Children matter. Grace matters. Get the, the eternal life is a gift of God. The status quo would not be happy with that. They were not happy with that. So this is exactly what happens here. These teachings, Jesus knew this, would ultimately get him killed. So, a little bit of teaching there. So after saying all that, right? After Jesus taught all of that, and, all that, and after he taught that in his kingdom, all current social power structures would be upended, James and John come and ask a question about social power. They want the two top spots in Jesus' coming kingdom. And I gotta imagine that Jesus was probably completely exhausted with these two teenage boys asking this silly question. Were they not listening? I have to think that. But you see what Jesus has done here, right? By, by redefining our expectations of culture, he's sowing the seeds of his kingdom. And he's saying that in his kingdom, the world's not going to look the same. The gathering of Jesus' followers, this, this church, it's going to be full of diverse people. It's going to exalt the humbled. In fact, we see that in the world of Paul's churches. Slaves and slave owners worshipped together. Strong women worshipped with representatives from the Roman Empire. They worshipped together. Children and parents both of their parents, by the way, worshiped together. Men and women hosted and opened their home and homes and led churches to believers. This radical redefinition of culture is exactly why we're here, by the way. It's why we're here. We find something here in this gathering in a church we can't find anywhere else. Outside of the church, we find that hard work, and sacrifice in careers 
and employment. We have to do all these things to get ahead, to move further. That we, we find outside of the church that our hard work, like the rich young ruler, our hard work equals greater opportunities. But Jesus says that ethos doesn't exist in the church. The work is done. That's the gospel. In the kingdom of Jesus, the vulnerable and the marginalized are justified. They're given station. They're given a place. They're recognized as equal. They are seen. And that's why the church is an amazing place to be. And this is why Jesus found himself so frustrated with James and John. They've yet come to the realization that the world, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, is going to be completely different. So I want you to listen again to Jesus' words, specifically from Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There is no business mission statement in the world that says something like this. There's nothing outside of this place that demands we become slaves to other people. I don't know if you realize, but those two verses, some of the most revolutionary words ever said in the history of the world. And they radically redefine expectations of how we gather and how we fellowship. So to be seen as a different kind of God, Jesus had to redefine what we expect out of the world, out of culture. And he killed the social structures that forced people to fight each other, to oppress others. This kind of social system cannot exist with a different kind of God. The second thing here in being seen as a different kind of God is that Jesus actually redefines our expectations of God. This is number two. Jesus redefines our expectations of God. Let's listen again to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, as this different kind of God, actually refers to himself in a different kind of way. He calls himself the Son of Man in this passage. Now, this is a reference. You can write this down. It's from Daniel chapter 7. You can read this later. Where in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is an exalted figure. Jesus loves this phrase for himself. It's a subtle hint at who he is. He wouldn't identify himself as Messiah or as the Son of God or as God's anointed because he knew if he did, they were going to force him or try to make him to be king. So he didn't do that. He called himself the Son of Man. It was a nice little cue who he really was. So here, by defining himself this way, he says something very critical about himself and about his identity. He's God. That's what it means by being called the Son of Man. And his sole purpose, you got to listen to this, his sole purpose is to redeem. And the only way for him to redeem is to serve us. Jesus served us. What, what an amazing thought for just a minute. Listen, listen to how radical this is. In the pantheon of religions and religious expressions in the world, in the world, God, gods do not serve people. People were created to serve gods. Performance by humans matters to the false gods of other religions and correct performances 
offer rewards and allow people to enter streams of consciousness or nirvana or paradise, but even then you got to fulfill certain tenets. This makes existence with these gods laborious and fearful because what happens if you don't perform correctly? What happens if you make the wrong choices? What happens if you fail at one of these tenets? How in the world would you know? This is the great contrast between Christianity and other religious practices. The God of Christianity, the God of all creation, the Father of Jesus Christ, did not create people to be served by them, but created people to serve them, to serve us. That's why you're here. You're here because God wants to serve you. It's an amazing apologetic argument about Christianity. Christianity is all by itself here. It's an exclusive religion with this. There's no other religious practice like this in the world, in existence. What other God has ever told his or her people? That he exists to serve them. But if we are purchased, if we are ransomed, this is one of the questions, right? From what are we ransomed? What's the big deal with this? I'm going to tell you. You got to follow the logic of Mark 10. You got to refer to that outline you just took. And you, if you have your Bibles, you can open it up because it kind of all follows one thread. It's really difficult to pull this statement out and say it means one thing when, when clearly it, it means something else through Mark 10. So what, we, what, what are we purchased from, right? So Jesus redeems us. He ransoms us. But in this chapter, it's not from some afterlife punishment. He's redeeming us from the here and the now. He's redeeming us from the world that sin has created. The sin of Adam and Eve created an upside down world, a world outside of the Garden of Eden with power struggles and heartbreak and work that exhausts. But Jesus, as God, said, not anymore. In my kingdom, it will not be this way. I am the price for your freedom. There is no more sacrifice you have to make to be accepted. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. I've paid for it and I bought your freedom. And in the gathering of my followers, you're going to find relief from a world broken by sin. It's a brand new way to live. It's a brand new way to love. You're going to be served here and you're going to be treated like royalty and you're going to be seen. And this is what it means to gather as a people of God. Dan Cathy of Chick-fil-A captured this in his company, right? People want to be loved and served and encouraged and uplifted. And Dan Cathy wrapped this premise around a chicken sandwich, but Jesus used a cross and an empty tomb. We are the church, the gathering of the redeemed, the ransomed, and we follow a different kind of God. 